You're listening to Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Betty Comden, who wrote some of the best musicals for Broadway and Hollywood, including On the Town, Singing in the Rain, and Bells Are Ringing, recalled a luncheon in MGM. She sat with studio executives. The subject of the meeting were the changes in the industry, such as the Supreme Court antitrust ruling against Paramount Studio that had broken up the monopoly they had on the chains, on the theater chains, and the growing threat to ticket sales from television. Betty remembered that for dessert, they were served dishes of chocolate ice cream in the shape of Minnie Leo the Lion, the studio mascot. Betty noted, we watched them melt before our eyes, and it seemed so symbolic, but no one caught on. Bells Are Ringing, from 1960, is like the dish of Leo the Lion chocolate ice cream, a sweet treat at the end of a long meal, or in this case, the studio system. Bells Are Ringing was the last production of the famed Arthur Freed unit, which had produced lavish musicals for decades. It was the end of three decades' worth of outstanding woman's pictures from Metro. It was the last time that anyone wanted to make a picture where you could argue that a telephone was a vital instrument in a woman's life that brought pleasure, opportunity, and important news. More importantly, Bells Are Ringing was Judy Holliday's last picture. It seems hard to believe that she only starred in seven pictures— She made others, but in supporting roles. Although her life was cut tragically short, she left an indelible imprint on motion pictures. Judy's experience on stage and in front of the camera combined for a special kind of improvisation. She had an uncanny gift to be in the moment, which made every bit of business look spontaneous, as if she had just done that in the moment, rather than the same thing she's done a thousand times before. Where most actors became impatient and bored with playing the same role eight times a week for years on end, Judy Holliday made the arduous task a challenge, a chance to fine-tune each moment over and over again. Judy Holliday discovered improv in 1938 when she joined a comedy sketch troupe that performed in basement dives in in Greenwich Village. Over the years, Judy built her acting craft in front of live audiences. For her most famous role in Oscar win, for Billy Dawn in Born Yesterday, Judy played the role for three years on stage, over a thousand times before she starred in the screen version. And she did the same thing with Ella Peterson in Bells Are Ringing. She played the role over a thousand times before it was filmed for MGM. Bells Are Ringing stands as a shining testament to her creativity as an actor. How can you go wrong with a picture where three men hail a woman as a miracle worker? 
Judy Holiday is the smartest person in the picture. She's plugged in, listens to everyone with her whole body, and knows what's best for the clients of Suzanne's phone. As a result, she becomes an every woman who does whatever it takes to engineer the right outcome for her clients, despite warnings from the vice squad. As Ella Peterson, Judy adopts a variety of alternate personas. She's Santa Claus for a little boy who won't eat his spinach. She's a matchmaker for a pair of Siamese cats and their owners. She's a doctor for an opera singer, a French secretary when needs must, a career advisor for a dentist, a beatnik for a lazy actor, and a mother figure for a philandering playwright deep in his cups. Judy is a Jill of all trades who lives in the moment and provides sage counsel under a benevolent ruse system. She bestows miracles like a fairy princess on her fellow New Yorkers. Only Ella doesn't have a magic wand. She mostly uses the switchboard and an operator's headset to cast her spells, followed up by brief visits where she swoops in and corrects the situation to save the day. Ella conducts good works in a clandestine fashion, thanks to nosy Parker detectives from the Vice Squad who think the answering service is a front for sex trafficking. There are three scenes which showcase Judy's comedic genius with little bits of business that are fresh and inventive. The first time she meets Jeff in his apartment, in a beatnik coffee house where she tries to convince an unemployed actor how to get a job, and at a swanky party in Sutton Place where she meets the fashionable crowd and finds a way to blend in. Worried that Jeff hasn't answered his 7 a.m. wake-up call, she breaks into his apartment so she, so she can make sure that he gets to work on the new show he's supposed to be writing. Rumpled and hungover, Jeff squints at the woman in a powder pink dress with puffy crinoline skirts and asks in his best Rat Pack dissipated voice if she happens to have a cup of coffee in her purse. Judy gives a small smile and resists the urge to break the fourth wall, and yet also somehow she breaks the fourth wall and connects directly with the audience in this moment when she pulls a container of coffee with a lid out of her cute little box purse. She unfolds the purse, which is shaped like a takeout container, and pulls the carton of coffee as though it just occurred to her, as if it wasn't in her purse the whole time. It seems like many other stars would have mugged for the camera in the moment, especially when she hands Jeff the prune Danish. Judy doesn't do any such thing. Everything happens like she just thought of it. Jeffrey, played by Dean Martin, is Ella's secret crush, a man who's struggling to prove himself professionally by writing his first play without a partner. He's at the beginning of a downward spiral. There are highball glasses dotted all around his apartment. At least one is always within arm's reach. On his desk, seven glasses are lined up like dead soldiers. He's a man who's turned to the brown to help drown his rising tide of panic. When he speaks to mom from the answering service, Jeff has one cigarette between his fingers and another smoldering in the ashtray next to him on a chair. He's sleeping on the couch fitfully rather than soundly in bed. Mom offers comfort and encouragement. Some critics felt Dean was miscast, but he's perfect for the part. 
somewhere he was probably drawing on it when he what he felt like when his act with Jerry Lewis broke up Dean must have asked himself if everyone would think his partner created the magic he looks like the type who might brush his teeth with whiskey in the morning but he has those bedroom eyes and that honey cured voice Jack Lemon, as great as he was with Judy, couldn't have pulled off this role. He had the face of a Boy Scout compared to Dean. In another scene, Judy dashes off to help a struggling actor played by Frank Gorshin. On her way out of the Suzanne basement office, she runs into an old man who looks like he runs a tugboat off the East River. She compliments his hat, a sea captain's lid that looks like it's been through the war. Cut to the next scene, in a hipster coffee house, Judy strolls in wearing the old man's cap, an oversized sweatshirt, and slim leg trousers. She's disguised as a hepcat to save an egomaniac method actor from himself. Frank Gorshin plays the role with a delicious impression of Marlon Brando. His line delivery is marble mouth genius. And physically, he plays the wannabe thespian like an overgrown toddler on the verge of a tantrum. To play the self-absorbed actor, Blake Barton, Frank Gorshin keeps his hands on his body at all times. He folds his arms underneath his sweatshirt. For the narcissistic actor he plays, he's so wrapped up in himself that the focus of each encounter He self-soothes by hugging, rubbing, and patting his chest and stomach like a baby. Cuckoo is the house lingo. Part of Judy's advice is drowned out by some jazz in a gleeful bit where sax and bass drive the message home. Judy tells him he has to lose the blue jean action and wear a suit. S-U-T, she spells it out for him. Despite his strong negative reaction against looking like a fake, the lesson sticks. He arrives at a men's clothier shop. When we next see him in a bar, Frank Gorshin looks like the dapper cousin to David Niven in a snug three-piece suit, very posh, ordering a martini. He wins the part in Jeff's new show, The Midas Touch. Judy riffs with the music, the cigarette, a deep growly voice, the sailor's cap, the jerky knee and elbow movements when she's in that beatnik coffee house are so choreographed as any of the dance numbers in the picture. None of it looks rehearsed, but since it's so effortless, you know that there were many hours of practice to get it to look so good and natural on camera. Later, Judy has a date with Jeff. Thanks to her help with discipline, he wrote a draft of the play that his producer really liked. He wasn't going to fail after all. Jeff wants to take her out dancing to celebrate. Judy wears the red dress she received from Madame Grimaldi, the opera singer, that was designed for La Traviata. It's perfect for dancing. It's a red chiffon with a full skirt. At the last minute, Jeff makes a change of plans. They're going to go to a swanky party in Sutton Place. Sutton Place, to me, by the way, will always be the home of Miriam Hopkins. (laughs) Judy tries to resist. She doesn't want to hang out with the swells. But Jeff insists. The party, as it turns out, is thrown for Jeff as guest of honor to celebrate his new script. Judy wanders around. Normally, she gets everything. She's always fine-tuned to conversation, but suddenly, she's among a crowd of name-droppers, and she doesn't get the references. 
she feels out of her element, especially so fashion-wise. Ella Peterson is dressed for the cha-cha when every other dame in the joint looks like she's going to the opera to sit in a fancy box and have people stare at her new gown. The women at the party wear different gowns that are really kind of all the same. They're long, lean column gowns in a color spectrum that looks like it was taken from the hors d'oeuvre table. The gowns are the color of champagne, oysters, olive, and that kind of paprika yolk of devil eggs color. They are the color of food for women who look like they don't eat. After Judy makes the rounds at the party, she grabs one of the little knives from the buffet table and jams it into her stomach. It's a riot. It looks like she's trying to make a hasty exit from the party by depositing her guts on the silver trays of finger food. The knife, though, doesn't cut that deep. Instead, Judy performs a radical dress alteration in the middle of the swells. She cuts off the poofy chiffon skirting and leaves a slim-fitting sheath dress that's underneath. The overskirt she discards in the hallway at the top of the stairs where it attacks a man like a low-down party crasher. Judy performs the desperate alterations with doe-eyed innocence. She tosses away the skirt like it were a cocktail napkin. For every scene, Judy's gift at improv enriches the picture, where she backs into Cherry's flambe and sets her ruffled skirt ablaze, where she catches the red chiffon scarf without looking at it during a dance number with Dean Martin, or when she belts out a banger like I'm going back to the Bonjour Tristesse Brassiere Company. Judy has an earnest quality that makes her natural and a natural part of her character. In real life, Judy started out as a switchboard operator. When she was a teenager, she landed her first job as a switchboard operator for the Mercury Theater. Judy took the position to get her foot in the door of the prestigious theater group headed by Orson Welles and John Hausman. She had a dream to write and direct for the stage, and anything that put her in the proximity of the theater was a good start. Hausman noticed Judy right away, but not for her talent. Hausman shouted each time he was cut off in the middle of a phone call. Judy started out wrangling the switchboard wires, plugging them in blinding and blindly and hoping for the best. Since Judy excelled at puzzles and word acrostics, the switchboard was another game for her to master, which she did in short time. During a rare holiday with her mother at an adult summer camp in 1938, she met Adolph Green, who was cast in a production of The Pirates of Penzance, part of the resort's entertainment. Judy helped with the set design backstage. She didn't perform, but she was excited to be part of the amateur company. Back in New York, Judy was caught in the rain one day and, seeking shelter, she followed a stray cat into a basement stairwell for cover. A man beckoned her inside. Judy was wary, but found the dive joint was a cabaret for local poets and writers to read their work in progress. The patrons were largely struggling artists who were often crabby hecklers. Located in Greenwich Village, it was called the Village Vanguard. The man who invited Judy inside turned out to be the club's owner, Max Gordon. This was a different Max Gordon, not the same man who was the Broadway producer who staged The Women in 1936 and in the future Born Yesterday with Judy in 1946. 
As Judy and Max talked, she said that he should put on shows at the weekend. Max asked what kind of show she had in mind. Judy said songs and skits, a satire comedy act. act. Max liked the idea. Judy had scored a booking before she even had an act. Without wasting any time, Judy rang Adolf Green. He was part of a group called Six and Company that performed skits for women's groups and some of the smaller clubs in the Catskills circuit. Six and Company performed one weekend in the Village Vanguard. Their act was hammy and old-fashioned, a throwback to borrowed vaudevillian punchlines. The audience panned the act, and so did Max Gordon. Six and Company broke up, but Max advised Judy and Adolf to work on a new act. Adolf, who paid bills measuring carpets and working as a runner on Wall Street, reached out to a recent graduate he knew from NYU Drama School, Betty Comden, who was struggling in summer stock with walk-on parts on stage. She accepted Adolf's invitation to join the new group, Betty recommended a friend from NYU, a a guy she knew named John Frank, who played piano and guitar. Adolph recalled a man he knew who worked in a comedy duo. His name was Al Hammer, one half of Hammer and Sickle. Al worked in the garment district and performed monologues on stage. He agreed to join. Judy's Uncle Harry chose the name for the group, The Reviewers. On their first night in the basement club, they performed one by one on the stage and didn't exactly light up the room. Collectively, they realized that they couldn't afford to pay royalties for using published material, so they wrote their own. They brainstormed skits and songs in Betty's parents' house. Then they moved to the apartment Judy and her mother Helen shared, which helped because they had a piano. At the start, they thought they needed a new act each week and met every day writing new material. Max suggested they scale down the number of skits and songs and spend extra time revising them. Max paid the reviewers a share of the take on the door and the sodas and sandwiches he sold. It netted them about $5 each a performance. They were making peanuts for sure, but I doubt they paused to grumble. The reviewers were young, ambitious, and full of energy. They were theater kids. Word began to spread. A theater critic from the New York Post gave them a glowing review. They even got a mention in the New Yorker. The reviewers became the toast of the town. The in-crowd packed the basement dive. Notables from Broadway, writers, tastemakers, musicians, and even some Hollywood stars came to see the clever comedy group in the Village Vanguard. Max Gordon had enough money to spruce up the joint. He put in a bar to serve cocktails rather than soda. Soon the group had dates in bigger clubs and radio appearances. Their skits and songs spoofed popular culture, film, radio, theater, magazines, and music. You can find a fair amount of their act on archive.org. Judy did one skit dressed as the Statue of Liberty, where she complained about everybody going to Queens to see the World's Fair rather than coming to see her. At the end of this episode, I'll tack on a clip from my favorite skit of theirs, the reviewer's skit about a meeting of the Joan Crawford fan club that they did in 1939. When Judy first appeared on stage, she was lousy. She was a nervous wreck. She vomited before she took the stage each night. She trembled and wept. 
But then a curious thing happened. In a matter of weeks, Judy figured out what it took other actors years to learn. She was so hardwired to audiences that she knew not only what failed, but why something fell flat. Her instincts were dead on. In a short time, she was confident and inventive on stage. Judy's sensitivity as a performer increased over time. In her memoir, Offstage, Betty Comden shares a story about when she and Judy Holiday were young and starting out. They were regulars at a dress shop called Wilma's on 57th Street. They went to Wilma's because a woman who worked there had been dating Judy's father. She and Judy had the run of the place. Performing on stage every week meant they needed a decent wardrobe. I can picture Betty and Judy stalking the rails in the shop hunting for treasure. Betty recalled that the window displays in Wilma's were jammed with daytime frocks made of garish neon satin and dresses embellished with sequins and frills. There were also evening gowns trimmed with pink fur and marabou for an over-the-top sexy look. The outfits were racy. Despite the tatty clothes in the shop, if they spent enough time digging around in the stockroom, Judy and Betty would almost always find a gem. Once, Betty wore a black crepe number, plain, with a round neckline, and a friend asked where she got the beautiful dress. When Betty replied, Wilma's, the woman's eyes popped out with surprise, and she shot back, you must have stayed up all night taking the sequins off. But Betty recalled that Wilma's had been good to Judy and herself. They sifted through the tacky garb for stylish clothes. In some way, this little story speaks volumes about their approach to acting. They created material for the act, and they tried it out in front of an audience on stage. Does it fit? Does it look good? Is it complimentary, pleasing to the eye? Judy and Betty were collaborative, open to reinvention, and braved it out under a spotlight. If they hung in there and kept working on it, they would come up with something good. Trying on something was part of their process on the stage, which links back to the level of costume and the dressing room in Wilma's. The reviewers were big fish in a little club, but when they accepted a booking for the Rainbow Room in Rockefeller Center, the rapport they had established with an audience disappeared. The plucky group of kids with their skits and songs didn't match the big room full of swells and tuxedos and evening gowns. As quickly as their reputation soared, it crashed with a thud. They tried their luck touring out of town and experienced the same failure to connect with audiences. Then Kurt Frings, a brash agent, depicted by Charles Boyer in Hold Back the Dawn, offered them a booking at the Trocadero in Hollywood, and he offered them a shot at a movie, which fell through, but they went out west anyway. The audience was packed with studio agents, producers, and stars when they opened at the Trocadero. A representative from 20th Century Fox offered Judy a preliminary contract at $150 a week, but they only wanted Judy, and Judy was unwilling to break up the act. Offers from other studios fell in her lap, which she also rejected. Men sent cards backstage for the pretty one, which must have been devastating for Betty. Fox returned with another offer. If Judy signed the standard seven-year contract at $400 a week with options, they would offer short-term contracts to the entire group as tryouts 
for an appearance in the picture Greenwich Village, starring Donna Amici and Carmen Miranda. The reviewers agreed and filmed their act, but it landed on the cutting room floor. They had a brief line here and there as extras, and that was it. After the six weeks were up, everyone was out of work except for Judy. Al Hammer and John Frank went back to New York. Adolph and Betty stayed and hoped to break into pictures. Sylvia Regan, a New York actress who had dated Judy's father, was in Hollywood working as a screenwriter. She doled out advice to Adolph and Betty. She told them it was too risky to stay. They didn't have the looks to make it as stars, and they might be left with nothing better than working as extras forever in walk-on parts, and that was a road to nowhere. Sylvia advised them to return to New York and write a hit musical. In the meantime, Judy collected a paycheck, but did little more than work on a tan. One day, Kurt Frings rang. She was being summoned to studio head Daryl Zanuck's office. Kurt picked her up, took one look at what she was wearing, and declared it wasn't right. Judy was wearing her best suit, a one in red that she had bought from Wilma's. It may have been good enough for a booking agent in New York or a club promoter, but for a meeting with a Hollywood mogul, it wasn't enough to stay star potential. Kurt took her to the Fox wardrobe, where they outfitted Judy in a dress. Kurt gave her a couple of inserts for her bra. A little help with cleavage suited the occasion. Zanuck's secretary told Kurt to have a seat. The meeting was for Judy only. Inside the office, Zanuck didn't waste time being Zanuck. He probably had the most notorious reputation for betting starlets among the studio bosses. Zanuck hadn't counted on Judy. He went with the ham-fisted, I must have you, you belong to me overture as he grabbed for her. Judy pulled the pad inserts out of her bra, handed them to Zanuck and said, these belong to you, Mr. Zanuck, but I don't. The meeting ended abruptly. Judy's time in Hollywood might have been a total waste if not for the small part she had in I Wanted Wings, directed by George Cukor. It was the beginning of a fruitful collaboration with a director who helped launch Judy in her biggest career success. But at the end of 1944, Fox dropped Judy's option. Moguls tended to be vindictive when turned down by aspiring starlets. She returned to New York and moved in with her mother. At a loss and out of work, Judy discovered that her friends Betty and Adolph were opening an original show that they had written that included parts for themselves. Judy attended opening night. The show was a smash hit. Suddenly, the two who couldn't make it in Hollywood earlier in the year were the toast of Broadway and had Hollywood begging for the return. Their musical was On the Town which became an MGM classic with Gene Kelly, Ann Miller, Frank Sinatra, and Betty Garrett. Judy was happy for her friends, but also overcome with professional jealousy and depression. I might add that Judy wasn't exactly worried about her friends while she was sunbathing in Hollywood. As it turned out, her friends hadn't forgotten her. Adolph arranged a meeting with a Broadway director who needed needed to cast a supporting role. Judy didn't know it was a job audition when she went. The meeting was enough for the director to offer Judy the part of a brassy sex worker with a heart of gold and kiss them for me. The following year, Judy took over for Jean Arthur in Born Yesterday. 
Judy had learned the part in 48 hours before she went on stage. Again, her training with improvisation helped her to prepare for the role that led to an Oscar win during a year of very stiff Oscar competition. Bells Are Ringing opened on Broadway at the end of 1956. Betty Comden and Adolph Green had been writing partners for more than 15 years when they began work on Bells Are Ringing. In an interview with Patrick McGilligan, they discussed their collaborative process, which sounded like a true partnership. It wasn't a case of one being stronger in a specific area, say, one generated ideas for the story and the other fleshed out the characters. They complemented each other rather than filling in each other's weak spots. Each project had its specific challenges. For Singing in the Rain, arguably their biggest studio hit, the challenge was daunting. Arthur Freed, the director of MGM's musical unit, handed them a song catalog written by himself and Herb Nacio Brown and told them to write a story that fit the songs. They went through the usual torture of sobbing, tearing up drafts, staring at walls and pacing the room before they finally found the key. The catalog had been written between 1928 and 1931. They used the dates as a springboard to develop a plot about the transition to sound in Hollywood. Comden and Green realized that starting in the middle was often the best way to start a script. If they could find a way to get to know a character in a specific scene or song, they were off to a good start. One day when they began to write Bells Are Ringing, After they tired of looking at each other and around the room, waiting for inspiration to strike, they turned to look at the New York City phone book. They read an advertisement for an answering service. Betty asked Adolph about his service. Was it any good? They decided to pay a visit to the office, assuming that it would be some modern setup. Instead, they found it in a basement with a low ceiling, dark and dank, with a lone woman at a giant switchboard. That gave them an idea. Betty and Adolph began working on the script for Broadway in May 1955. By October, they had the title and star designated, their old reviewer's cast member, Judy Holliday. Jules Stein joined the production as composer. The choreographer and director, Jerome Robbins, whom they had worked with for Singing in the Rain, was hesitant about casting Sidney Chaplin as co-star. He was inexperienced and didn't have a strong singing voice. Judy argued for Sid, believing he had charisma even if he didn't have the best voice in town. By June of 1956, when the show was due to begin rehearsals in September, they still needed two big numbers. Jerome Robbins took the most expedient route. He locked Betty, Adolph, and Jewel in his house each day and to make sure they were working. He served them lunch, and at the end of the day, they were allowed to go home. They were finished in no time. Neither Judy or Sidney considered themselves accomplished singers, which was a risky move to headline a big stage musical, but both stars practice. Judy was adamant that she was unwilling to sing a ballad. Jewel Stein figured out a way to outfox Judy into doing it. Betty had remembered that Judy always enjoyed singing in harmony when they were in the reviewers. She told Stein about this, And so Stein taught Judy the song she thought she would be singing with a chorus, which became the show's hit, The Party's Over. One day, Judy asked Stein what the main part of the song was. He replied, you ought to know you've been singing it for a week. 
She wasn't thrilled at being tricked, but she persisted with the song rehearsals. During previews leading up to the big opening on Broadway, the third act felt too flat. They needed something upbeat, a big rousing number for Judy near the finish. One account credits Adolph Green with finding inspiration from a novel he was reading, uh, Bonjour Tristesse by Francois Seguin. Other accounts of the production credit it to a group brainstorming session where the name of the novel was taken for the lingerie company where Ella Peterson used to work. The title makes its way into the song I'm Going Back. Ready to throw in the towel and quit Suzanne's phone, Judy sings that she's going back to the Bonjour Trees Test Brassier Company and leave the subscribers behind. Bells Are Ringing was a big hit on Broadway and continued to do good business even after Sidney left the show and Hal Linden took over as Jeffrey Moss. Judy won the Tony Award for Best Actress in 1957 for playing the Good Samaritan of Suzanne Serphone. In Metro, under the Arthur Freed unit, Comden and Green had a unique experience as writers in the studio system. Unlike virtually every other screenwriter, Comden and Green didn't have to negotiate the fraught experience of studio collaboration. They didn't have to consult with other writers. MGM did not subject their scripts to rewrites by other writers under contract. They had more autonomy than any other writer on staff. But in the same month that they were to have the script for Bells Are Ringing finished for Arthur Freed, for production to begin, they were headlining a new show called A Party with Betty Comden and Adolph Green. They were distracted with their new project and had trouble getting back to revising the old one. It's the oldest story in the book for writers. The new thing is always more interesting. Betty and Adolph were performers at heart, and now, after establishing their names as writers in Hollywood and Broadway, they took the plunge to return to doing live shows. Judy understood and agreed to tour with Bells Are Ringing, that she had performed over a thousand times on Broadway until they were ready to begin adapting it to the screen. Weeks rolled by and Betty and Adolph still asked for further extensions before they could get the work done for the studio. According to the director, Vincent Minnelli, Judy worried about everything and Dean Martin would rather have died than let you think he cared about anything. Minnelli tried to ease the tension about the unfinished script by shooting exteriors in New York. He found the location for the Suzanne phone office from an article in Time magazine about rebuilding in New York. In the magazine layout, one block was torn down to rubble except for a lone building in the center, which stood out as a holdout for new city planning. The exterior of Sutton Place and the back private garden were also something Minnelli had arranged by contacting an ex-wife of Aristotle Onassis, who happened to live there and granted the studio access. During production, as a distraction and stress reliever, Judy wrote songs with Jerry Mulligan, who was cast in the picture as her blind date. He was a big jazz musician of the time. They wrote a Christmas song together called It Must Be Christmas. Dean Martin liked it so much that he wanted to record it on his next album. Dinah Shore sang it on a TV holiday special. Instead of ending the episode with the grim details of Judy's death from cancer, weeks before her 43rd birthday, I'd like to go back for a minute to her role as Billy Dawn in Born Yesterday. 
Judy once performed the part, not on stage or film, but in front of the Senate, which may have been her most inspired use of improvisation throughout her career. It saved her life. In real life, Judy Holliday had a genius IQ of 172, yet she's beloved for playing scatterbrained blondes. Judy was identified with Billy Dawn, the character she played in Born Yesterday. She starred in the Hollywood screen version for Columbia and then won Best Actress. Being a bona fide genius, Judy was tired of being mistaken for an airhead, but the false impression came in handy and it got her out of a real jam. During the hysteria whipped up by McCarthyism, Judy was called to testify before a special Senate committee, not the usual HUAC grandstanders as most Hollywood stars and executives were called before. She was summoned to the Senate's Internal Security Subcommittee. Judy was compelled to answer questions by a committee formed to detect serious cases of espionage. The committee targeted Jewish entertainers who had a history of left-wing political activity. There was an anti-Semitic agenda behind which people made the list. Judy faced a considerable danger that not only threatened her career, which could have ended as quickly as it had for another Columbia contract player, Larry Parks. Even worse, she could wind up behind bars. Harry Cohn intervened. You know I've given out about him in other podcast episodes, but Harry is my favorite among the moguls. It's often reported that he insulted Judy when they first met. He made her wait for an audience and then dismissed her with a weary, well, I've worked with fat asses before. But when the feds loomed large over Judy, Harry stepped up. He put Columbia's legal department behind Judy. They made sure she was protected and prepared to face the committee. Even if Harry only acted in a selfish manner to protect his new Oscar winner's box office potential and revenue for the studio, he was the only mogul to go out on a limb and assist a star when the government had them in their crosshairs. Judy appeared before the panel in a conservative black suit. She gave the most important performance of her life. The men asked about her political affiliations and why she performed at benefits and fundraisers for socialist and leftist groups. Essentially, she channeled Billy Dawn. She danced around their questions and played dumb. It gave the men on the panel the opportunity to feel superior. At the end of her testimony, Judy concluded that in the future, she would only say yes to cancer and dementia or something along those lines. The men were satisfied that they had chastened the star. They said, well, as long as you've learned your lesson in a chorus of button-down paternalism. Only a brilliant woman could have figured out that angle in that kind of scenario. The following books helped me to write the episode. Judy Holliday, An Intimate Life Story by Gary Carey, published in 1982. Judy Holliday, A Biography by Will Holtzman, published in 1982. Off Stage by Betty Comden. Backstory 2, Interviews with Screenwriters of the 1940s and 1950s, edited by Patrick McGilligan. I Remember It Well by Vincent Minnelli, with Hector Arce, published in 1974. They Made Us Happy, Betty Comden and Adolph Green's Musicals and Movies by Andy Probst, published in 2019. Thanks for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Patricia Neal and The Fountainhead. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, why not leave a nice review on social media or iTunes? Thanks for listening.